Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. We're looking at the whole chapter this morning, verses 1 through 48. It's a lofty endeavor, I know, but we needed to look at these together. If, if maybe this is your first time with us or if you haven't been with us in a while, uh, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. It's a good and glorious book. It's been really helpful for us to think about what it means to be a Christian and how to live this Christian life and, and what, what part do we have in this? What is God calling us to? And so really that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in detail by examining the life of Cornelius. We're, we're going to attempt to answer one of the most basic, one of the most important but yet one of the most often assumed questions in the Christian faith. It is a, it, it is a question that, that we may automatically think that we know, but it's surprising how often we can get this mistaken. Perhaps we minimize this down to some lowest common denominator, some, some small, very neat, tight definition of the Christian faith so much so that we can check it off our list, but it really loses its significance or its value or it's something that we think that's like, okay, that was for me at one point in time, but I've kind of now moved beyond it. But to assume a wrong or an incomplete answer can be and has been the destruction of many countless professing Christians. The question is fairly simple. What is a Christian? Or, or maybe another way to put it, what, what does saving faith in Christ look like? This is one of the most essential questions for us to answer, and yet so often we presume that we know the answer, and we sincerely and very unintentionally hold to a belief that is insufficient for salvation. So for example, maybe you grew up in church, like I did, and you think that a Christian is someone who simply intellectually assents to a minimum set of belief statements about Jesus and who displays that intellectual assent by at least performing some religious rituals on occasion. Or maybe you didn't grow up in church at all. And you think that Christians are really just a bunch of hypocrites who, who have this holier-than-thou attitude because they've got some special in with God that you, an unworthy sinner, can never have. If you're from a different country or a different culture, perhaps you think that that Christianity is, is just a part of Western culture. It's just a, it's a Western thing. And so, so to be a part of a Western culture is to be a Christian because it's, it's part of that culture. If you're a child, perhaps you think that a Christian is someone who thinks or acts or believes just like mom and dad do. And so as long as I kind of think about the world and think about God the way that, that mom and dad do, then I'm a Christian. Maybe you think that a Christian is simply a good person, a giving person, a prayerful person, or, or maybe even someone who tells other people about Jesus. Maybe you think a Christian is someone who is, claims to have had certain spiritual experiences that cannot be questioned because who are you to know whether or not that was genuine in my heart? 
Now, there is probably some measure of truth in your answer to that question, what is a Christian? But so often our definitions don't quite match up with reality. And so, and no matter how familiar we are with that question, we need to be careful to explore it again, lest we minimize it, lest we walk away from it, lest we forget about it, or lest we mistakenly presume upon it. And so this question is important for each and every one of us, whether you are here as an adult or a child, whether you have been in church for a long time, or maybe this is the first time you have ever set foot in a church building, whether you are from this part of the globe or from a very different one, whether you would consider yourself a good and upright person, a religious person, or maybe you would think that you are quite honestly reprehensible. There is nothing that is more important for us to consider this morning. And so to help us to explore that question, what is a Christian, we're going to examine the Apostle Peter, his interaction with this man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a good man, a religious man, a God-fearing man who was not a Jew, who desperately needed, just like all of us, to be saved. And though this statement fails to adequately summarize all that we see from this passage this morning, Acts chapter 10 is going to teach us that only those who believe in Christ and have received the Holy Spirit will be accepted by the Father. Now, this is a longer passage, and so as we read it, I want to encourage you to pay attention to how Cornelius is described and what this passage says that Cornelius truly needed. But as we meditate upon this text of Scripture together, my hope is that we would find our prayers being found acceptable to God through the power of the Holy Spirit because we have a right and faithful understanding of the person and work of Jesus. That's our goal this morning. And so if you would, please read with me Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were making their journey, uh, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted to eat, uh, wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened, and something like a sheet, great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, 
For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one whom you are looking for. What reason, what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by an, a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went out away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him. He went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in a house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, before we can answer that question, what is a Christian, we first need to clarify what a Christian is not. And Cornelius is going to help shed light on what a Christian is by giving us a list of descriptions that are insufficient for salvation. And so first, what a Christian is not. Now, if we were playing Family Feud, and I am I game show host voice with my long skinny microphone and my leisure suit were to come up and to ask you, what are the common misconceptions that people believe in America as to what a Christian is? Survey says answers are given right here in this text. What is a Christian? How do I know that I'm saved? Well, the number one answer that you would get that would give that bell sounding ding, 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 is that people think that I'm a Christian because I'm a good person. And in reality, <clears throat> the X comes up. Right? A Christian is not simply a good person. I mean, look at Cornelius. Can anybody not like Cornelius? This is a good guy. I mean, look at all he's doing. Verse 2 describes him as giving alms generously to the people. He's not being selective. He's just giving alms to the people. Right? He's kind, he's compassionate, he's charitable. In fact, he was so generous that an angel of the Lord actually appeared to him in verse 4 and told him, look, man, you are so good and you are so generous that your alms have actually ascended to God as memorial. Right? And this is something that, that, that Cornelius himself reiterates in verse 31. Yeah, God sent this angel and, and the angel told me that, that God remembers me and my prayers and my, my almsgiving because that's how good and generous I am. Guys, imagine that for a second, right? Like God stands up and takes notice of you because of how giving you are. Has anybody heard a word from the Lord about that one? Cornelius has. <laughs> Oh, would you look at him? There's a good and generous man. Even the two servants and the devout soldier that he sent out to meet up with Peter describe him in verse 22 as well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Think about this for a minute. His slaves think that he's a good man. Those soldiers who are under his command think that he's a good man. And they come together, they make this huge, this long journey to go get Peter and to return him because they know this and, and they're convinced that the whole Jewish nation thinks that he is a good man. And friends, they are saying this of a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion who is a part of the Italian cohort, with this, which is just a, a cohort of multiple regiments. So he's one among many, this commander of a battalion of aggressive, oppressive, dishonest, thieving Gentiles whose sole job is to keep your people under their thumb. And yet he's a good man. 
I mean, this is, this is like prisoners speaking very well of their warden or slaves speaking highly of their slave ship captain or conquered armies revering the general that just waylaid them. You have got to be a good guy for that to be the case. So many slaves, those under your command and conquered nations actually speak well of you. And even more than that, the Apostle Peter himself even seems to acknowledge that Cornelius is a really good guy because in verses 34 and 35, when he opens his mouth, he says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So God doesn't show partiality here, and if you do what is right, he accepts you, right? Isn't that what Peter's saying? Well, no, we'll get to that in a minute. But it is safe to conclude that Peter, as a spokesman for God, would actually commend Cornelius as someone who does what is right. So he's a good person. And isn't this the way that so many think? That if I'm just good enough, if I'm just right enough, if I just present myself in a certain way, if people like me enough, then God will accept me. There's another aspect of his goodness. Could have been its own survey says item, but I've chosen to put it under this one because I think it connects. Cornelius was successful. And I add this because some people view success as a sign of goodness or as a sign of God's favor, right? If I'm successful, then clearly God likes me and accepts me because he's blessed me with all this stuff. Or I'm successful, I'm good enough on my own that I really don't need God's grace. Look at me, I get it done. I'm a good guy. I'm successful. I mean, Cornelius was a respected commander of a battalion in a very important Roman city, Caesarea, right? This is the functional uh, capital of Judea, and this is where the Roman procurator had his seat. And so uh, this is not some outpost that's out on the fringes of the wilderness where nobody goes and nobody cares about. This is a central city. This is an influential, a, a, a political Roman culture center that is important and thriving. It's a trade center. And so this is like being the police commissioner of New York. It says he has servants and he gives alms generously, which means that he's got a lot of money. And both his servants and his soldiers are loyal to him. Occupied nations speak well of him. And so he's clearly a very good, influential, charismatic leader. Verse 24 tells us that he has a lot of family and friends. And so he's loved. He's popular. And so in the world's eyes, his success is evidence that he has been favored by God or his success is proof that he is good enough on his own that he doesn't really need God. That God's grace is for people who have really messed things up or, or that need that crutch because they really have nowhere else to turn. But me, I am successful. I am good enough on my own that I either have God's grace already or quite frankly, I just don't need it. Friends, these are common ways that we can evaluate our own sense of goodness and how we think that affects our position before God. Cornelius was, in every sense of the word, a good 
person. He was kind. He was generous. He was well thought of. He was successful. He did what is right, but he was not saved. A Christian is not simply a good person. And neither does being a devout person save you. That's like the second big red X up on our family feud board, all right? There are many who think that as long as I have prayed the sinner's prayer, or as long as I have been baptized, or as long as I take communion, or as long as I practice religious rituals like going to church, at least on occasion or even regularly, as long as I pray frequently or even read my Bible, then I am a Christian, But that is not necessarily true. Verse 2 describes Cornelius as a devout man who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. He's praying to God, Yahweh, the one true and living God of Scripture. And so Cornelius is devout. That's a strange word for us. We We don't use that word very often today. But devout means Religiously devoted means pious, it means godly, it means someone who respects and reveres God. And so we think, okay, devout is a good thing. It is a good thing. But let's not forget that in Acts chapter 2, there were devout men and women who were gathering for Pentecost, and they weren't saved either. You get to the end of that Pentecost message that Peter delivers and and their hearts are burning within them and they ask, what must we do to be saved? And he says, you must repent and believe in Christ. So they're devout, but they're not saved. Same way with Cornelius, he's devout, but he's not saved. Says he's a God-fearer, right? He trembles at God. He respects God. He worships God. He he reveres and fears the Lord. So more than likely, Cornelius is very aware of his sin, right? Very aware of his insufficiency to stand before a good and holy God and that he needs God's grace in order to be saved that he cannot deliver himself. And so he's turning to God in fear. He's worshiping the one true and living God, the God of the Jews, And yet, more than likely, he's a God-fearer because he's not a proselyte or a convert. He he probably has, maybe he didn't obey all of their food laws or their Sabbath regulations, but certainly he would not have been circumcised. Now, we we could really kind of sympathize with him and understand why this manly soldier would have a hang up with circumcision. But nevertheless, Cornelius not only feared the Lord, but he also led his whole household to do the same thing. And so Cornelius is a spiritual leader of his home. He's actually leading people, not just himself, like that works for me, but you, you, know, you kind of do whatever you want to do or whatever you feel like you need to do. No, he's actually leading them, his whole household, to fear the Lord as well. He prayed continually to God, not just his idea of a God or a God that I would like to fashion into my own image, a God that I find personally palatable to me, but he's praying to the one true and living God. Cornelius is a prayer warrior to Yahweh. 
He's consistently adhering to the Jewish practice of the hours of prayer. That's why we see in verse 3 that at the ninth hour, it's one of those set times for Jewish corporate prayer. And Cornelius makes it clear to us in verse 30 when he says, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And so guys, think about this for a minute. That means that Cornelius' faith and practice was very, very, very close to the Jewish faith and practice. And Jesus was a Jew. So that means that Cornelius' faith and practice was very, very close to Jesus' faith and practice. And the disciples were following Jesus. And so their, their faith and practice was the same as Jesus's. So that means that Cornelius' faith and practice was very, very close to the disciples, to the apostles' faith and practice. But it was not close enough. And if you would consider yourself to be spiritual, I'm a, I'm a very spiritual person. Let's face it, Cornelius has got you beat. Because how many of us have prayed in such a way that we have clearly seen in a vision an angel of God come in and tell us exactly what we need to do? Anybody? I've met some guys in India that had visions or dreams that have prepared them to hear and receive the gospel, but it wasn't the dream that saved them. It was only the dream that served to prepare them to hear the gospel message by which they were saved. But this hasn't happened to me, and so Cornelius is clearly more spiritual than I am. And the angel tells him, that his prayers and his alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So this whole praying thing, this whole almsgiving thing, this is working. I got God's ear. I got his attention. He's remembering me. And yet he's not saved. How do I know? Well, for one, if he's saved, why did the angel even need to appear to him in the first place? Or why did Peter have to have three consecutive visions to even get them together in the same room? Or two, why did he need to hear this message from Peter anyway? If he's already saved, why does Peter need to even show up? Because it's, it seems pretty irrelevant at this point. And when Peter shows up there in verse 25, why is Cornelius falling on his feet in worship of him? And Peter's having to say, no, stand up. I'm, I'm just a man like you. And so though he is an upright and God-fearing man, though he obeys the instruction of the angel right away, though they go and they get Peter and they bring him to Caesarea, though he is earnest and sincere in his spirituality and fervent to devote himself to those things, though he fears God and he does what is right, he is not acceptable in a saving sense. And Cornelius is even evangelistic. I mean, he's gathering family and friends together to hear this message. But at that moment, he is not saved. See, being missional can't save you either. Sometimes we think if we just do enough good stuff for God, if we just share Jesus with enough people, even though I don't know that it's really impacted my heart, maybe it will them and God will look favorably upon me for that. So he's not a Christian. 
And we know this because in verse 33, Cornelius says, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. There was a message that they still needed to hear. And in chapter 11, verse 14, Peter tells us that the angel commanded them to bring him to Joppa and that Peter would declare to you a message by which you will be saved. And so apart from that message, it didn't matter how religious Cornelius was, how devout he was, how sincere, how zealous, and how earnest he was in his faith. His faith had an incomplete object. You see, it's not enough to have some kind of faith in something. We have to have a real, genuine faith in the right thing. And he didn't have that. Cornelius was so, so close to the truth. And he was totally sincere. But his fear of the Lord was not enough because his faith was not in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is big. This is so big because there are people that will tell you that God saves people apart from faith at all. That just all people are going to be saved. That's called universalism. That's, that's just a couple of blocks from here. That message is being told. Still, there are others who would say, okay, well, you know, faith is important, faith is necessary, but the Christian faith is just one way to God, that there are actually many ways to God. That's called pluralism, and that's still very much alive and well. Or syncretism, this idea of like, I'll take, I'll take Jesus and I'll take fill in the blank. There are still others that say, no, really, All that matters for you is that you have a genuine and sincere and earnest faith. And it is the quality of your faith that saves you. And so as long as you are truly devoted to that faith, doesn't matter what it is, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, like you you worship a candlestick or, or something like that. It doesn't matter what it is. As long as it is sincere, then what happens is because God is love, God will take the work of Christ and he will apply it to you so that whether or not you ever hear and believe the gospel message, whether or not you have ever received the Holy Spirit, or whether or not you ever respond in repentance and faith and and seek to obey the name of Christ with your lives, you will be saved. That's called inclusivism. And it is alive and well. And I would even go so far as to argue that even though people might not claim it, it is a predominant view within American Christianity. Still others would say that you can profess to have a Christian faith. You can really be saved by Christ. You can call upon his name and believe, and not adhere to everything that Jesus taught, that Jesus practiced, that Jesus believed. That you can sort of pick and choose and, and make Christianity your own because it's more about being spiritual in the state of your heart before God than it is about having a right life that is consistent with the right doctrine of the one right Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, that's called relativism which is the predominant view of Christianity in America. It's alive and well.
But it is not a true Christian faith because a true Christian faith accepts the beliefs and practices of its object, Jesus Christ, and desires to submit to him in all things. Not perfectly, but truly, genuinely, repentantly. A Christian is not simply a good person or a devout person. And survey says that a Christian is not from a particular background. So what does Peter mean when he says there in verse 35, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Because when I look at that, that looks to me like as long as I have some genuine fear of God and I do what is right, then I'm acceptable to God. I'm saved. Well, no. We already have seen enough to know from verses 36 through 48 that that can't be the case. You see, the problem is with our wording. What makes one acceptable? What does Peter even mean when he says the word acceptable? Are we trying to define it by what we want that to mean or by what Peter actually means? This word acceptable doesn't mean justified or saved, but that you, have, you are welcomed to come to God. Right? That, that God no longer shows partiality. This is, verse 35 is actually an explanation of what happens in verse 34. That God no longer shows any partiality. There's no favoritism among nations here. God's not going to say, nope, you're from the wrong background, and so you can't come in because you're not a Jew. That's what he's saying here. This is the true meaning of Peter's vision of unclean animals, which the Holy Spirit helped him to understand in verse 28, to be taken as, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate with you or to visit anyone from another nation. And so Old Testament law would say that Israel was God's chosen nation and they are to be separate and cut off and distinct from every other nation in the world. And so if you were a Gentile like Cornelius or, and just by, by just we want to be clear, every single person in this room, right, is a Gentile. The closest non-Gentile is actually George over here. He's the closest. Okay, we'll get in. You're like, well, I'm done embarrassing you, George. But, okay, but George is still on the outside too, okay, uh, just like you and me. So there's no hope for you as a Gentile because you are not of God's chosen people, Israel. That's what he means. But pick it back up. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so that's why I've actually come to you. So, so what do you want from me? That's what Peter says. And, and then in verses 30 through 33, Cornelius recounts his own vision and the instruction he received from the angel. And he's gathered all of these family members and friends together in the presence of God to hear all that Peter had been commanded by God to say. And so this word acceptable means that God has now opened the door for the evangelization of the nations. That the gospel call now welcomes all, all peoples from everywhere, regardless of your background, to now come to him. And I would even say there's a little bit more to it than that. Because God's receiving Cornelius' alms and prayers as memorial doesn't mean that Cornelius is saved, 
but that God would indeed be faithful to hear the prayers and to send light to those of every nation who fear him and to seek to honor him by doing what is right. In other words, God would send gospel witnesses to them just as he did with Peter and Cornelius. All right, let's keep this in mind. Though Cornelius sent messengers to Peter, who orchestrated this whole deal? God did. It was God who sent the angel to Cornelius. It was God who gave Peter those visions. It was God who orchestrated the fact that Peter was in Joppa in the first place. It was God who sent Peter to Cornelius Right? And it was God who equipped him with this message that was given long ago through God's prophets, according to verse 43, to Christ all the prophets bear witness that everyone, and I mean everyone, who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin through his name. It doesn't matter who you are. Salvation comes through faith in the name of Jesus, just as the prophets bore witness for so long. And so not only does God open the doors to welcome nations in, God is also at work to lead them in by faith in Jesus Christ as he sends his people out as ambassadors for the glory of his name. There is no partiality when it comes to God's grace. So Christianity is not about being from a particular background. This is, this is so, so big for us. I mean, look around this room. It is, it is the glory of God that we are different from one another. And it's a pity if we are not. Because God's grace goes to all without partiality. And so why would I only take to the gospel to people who are like me? Why would I think for a moment that the gospel is only for people who are like me? It's not. No matter who you are, where you come from, what you have done, God welcomes you to come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. Christianity is not a Western thing. And sometimes you talk to people, particularly from, from Eastern um, backgrounds, and that's what they'll say. You know, Christianity is kind of a Western thing. Well, I, I always have to tell them, you know what, it, it never was a Western thing, right? It, it was always, you know, if you're going to count it regionally, it was always a Middle Eastern thing. That's why I picked on George just a little while ago, right? Because, because let's face it, if, if God's going to be selective, if he's going to show partiality, who'd he show it to? He showed it to Middle Eastern Jews, Right? And that would be, everybody else would be excluded. Easterners or Westerners, it doesn't matter. But that's all been removed. Peter was a Jew. But you know, just like Cornelius and all the Gentiles in this passage, Peter was not saved until he believed rightly in the person and work of Jesus Christ too. And so it's not even for the Jews, it never was. It's all about Jesus and who believe in him. 
And so regardless of who you are or what you've done or where you come from, we're all in the same boat here. We've all sinned against God. And the only hope for any of us is to believe in Jesus, to receive the forgiveness of sins that comes in his name. And so if you are from another nation, any other nation or every nation, this is for you. If your sin is great, this is for you. If you are a good person, this is for you. If you would consider yourself to be very religious, this is for you. If you would consider yourself not to be religious at all, this is still for you. Kids with Christian parents, this is for you. Now let me address you specifically right here for a moment. So if you're here as a kid with Christian parents, I want you to listen to what I have to say to you. This is really, really important. You know, I hope that you can understand what a blessing from God it is that you can grow up in a Christian home. That your parents love Jesus and they love you. That they are committed to bringing you to a Bible-believing church where you can hear the gospel week in and week out. Where you have parents that love you so much that they teach you about Jesus. That is huge. That is a great privilege from the Lord. But just because your parents are Christians, it doesn't mean that you are a Christian. Just because your dad is a leader in the church, it doesn't mean that automatically you are saved. It's really easy for us just to assume that we're Christians because our parents are, but a Christian is not from any particular background, not even a Christian one. And so to be a Christian, we must behold, we must believe, and we must bear within us what comes next. It's what comes next that's going to identify us as Christians. And I want that so desperately for you. I've been praying for you all this week. And so a Christian is not simply a good person or a devout person or from a particular background. And so now let's look at what a Christian is. First of all, a Christian is someone who earnestly believes the gospel. There is a, a message that Cornelius and his loved ones desperately needed to hear and to believe. And when we say believe, I don't mean that you just give a head nod saying, yeah, I believe that, I affirm that, I'm okay with that. But to have their lives defined by it. It's about trust. It's about a walk. It's about following after Christ. Here is why God sent the angel to Cornelius and the visions to Peter. Because they needed to find life and salvation in this truth. Verses 36 through 43. As for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Friends, this is a very, very nice summary of the Christian faith, but I want us to be very careful here. Let's not reduce this down to a simple belief statement that we can easily check the box and move away from and not really have it impact our heart for our daily lives. Because believing is more than simply saying, okay, I assent to that. But to have it transform your way of life. It says a greater impact on the Christian life and doctrine than what we read right here in this paragraph. Someone who earnestly believes the gospel exalts Christ in such a way that their lives are transformed to be reflections of his glory. They become more like Jesus. That's what believing in the gospel does in us. Not perfectly, but truly. Now we could spend a long time looking at this statement in depth, this this one concise little message here, but here's what we need to know. And so I hope that you kind of keep your fingers here and scroll through it as I just kind of quickly blast these things out for us, okay? I wish that I could spend more time, but you probably don't, but that's okay because we still love Jesus and I hope you love Jesus more and more every day, okay? But here we go. We're going to break it down. A person who earnestly believes the gospel, one, believes that the word that God sent to Israel. Don't minimize that statement right there. That is huge, right? Because this is talking about God's revelation to his people throughout all of history. One who truly and earnestly believes the gospel doesn't reject parts of the word of God, but recognizes that this is God's revelation to us of his perfect plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, his son. And that all of the prophetic word that came beforehand was meant to prepare us to see its fulfillment in Jesus. And so all of it, every bit of it is profitable for us. We're not disregarding, we're not dismissing, we're not saying, well, you know, that doesn't really line up with, with sort of the modern view of science and therefore I'm gonna reject it or whatever that's gonna be. It's we accept this as God's word that he gave to his people. A person who earnestly believes the gospel now has peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We now have peace with God. Meaning when God sees you, he doesn't see some unworthy, condemned sinner that is hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. He sees the righteousness of Christ being applied to you. And therefore, he accepts you. You now have peace with God. Would you live in that reality? I have peace with God. When I sin against God, I regret it. I, I, I repent. I believe, but I'm not condemned. I have peace with God. I want to live in light of that peace. 
And that peace not only affects my relationship with God and how I am viewed by God and how he views me and how I love him and how he loves me, but it also impacts the way I think about everybody else because now my goal in life is to make sure that not only I am living in light of that peace, but I want you to live in light of that peace. And so through evangelism or discipleship or just edification and encouragement of the church, I want to make sure that we're all living in light of this peace, that you know this hope and that you believe in it. And not only that, it affects our relationships purely this way. Because now, since we are now united in Christ and made one and joined together and he himself is our peace, we are to maintain this unity that we now have with each other in this bond of peace that we've been given. And so I'm going to pursue confession of sin and forgiveness and repentance and, and peacemaking between one another and reconciliation because that's part of what it means for Jesus to be our peace. A third description, a person who earnestly believes the gospel submits to Christ as Lord of all. Everything, including those little secret areas of your life that you think that no one sees or cares about. He is king over all. And our first allegiance is to Christ, to do his will and not our own. Someone who refuses to submit to the clearly revealed will of God has, as Jude says, denied our only master and Lord and perverted the grace of God into licentiousness. A person who earnestly believes the gospel affirms all that the Bible teaches about the person and work of Jesus. We've got these gospel accounts that tell us of who he is and what he has done. We believe that he's fully God and that he's fully man, that he did everything that the gospels say that he did. All the miracles, all of the, the healings, all of the, the exorcisms. We believe what it says that he taught us about himself. We believe that he really did triumph over sin and Satan through his sacrificial and unjust death on the cross. A Christian is able to rest in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to cover all of our sins, and there really, therefore, is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A person who earnestly believes the gospel hopes in and longs to know the power of Christ's resurrection, that by any means possible, we too might attain the resurrection from the dead. A person who earnestly believes the gospel, trusts in the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, and not only that, but they actually devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. A person who earnestly believes the gospel knows for certain that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, that all people, regardless of whether they're alive or whether they have died, will stand before him in judgment, that there is a day that will come when all will have to give an account for what they believed and for how they lived and how they rejected or they accepted the Lord, and they're all going to stand before him, and his judgment against them will be perfect. A person who earnestly believes the gospel understands that Jesus alone is the only source of the forgiveness of sins. And that what we could never do, not in our best intentions or in our most desperate efforts, Christ has done perfectly. 
that he has accomplished it. He has paid the penalty for our sin. And so we can repent and believe not just one time, once upon a time, long ago, but, but repeatedly and seek to follow Christ daily by faith. I hope that you understand that this is not momentary or on an occasion, as it fits within my calendar and I'm, I'm not too busy or not preoccupied with other things, this earnest belief is at the center of all of life. It becomes the guiding principle, the very source of our personal identities before our family, before jobs, before personal interests, before cultural affiliations. This is now who we are. And this is what we are becoming by God's grace. And this is what we are striving to attain by the grace that God supplies. It's not a part. Is it at the very center of who we are? This is what it means to earnestly believe the gospel. But someone who is a Christian not only earnestly believes the gospel, they have also received the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit had clearly been at work up to this point, drawing and directing hearts. But as Peter was preaching in the middle of his sermon, God did a work. This is not something that you and I can do. As much as I wish that it was the case, because you better believe I'd be doing it every single one of you. It's like pow, 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 pow. I'd be doing it all the time, right? But I can't. But while he was preaching, verse 44 says that the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And so the, the Holy Spirit, the one who gives life, same Holy Spirit who empowers God's people for service, who, who purifies and, and sanctifies, the, the, the same Holy Spirit who reveals God's word, the same Holy Spirit that, that gives evidence of God's presence, who guides and directs and opens the eyes of the spiritually blind, the same Holy Spirit who brings about conviction of sin, who teaches us the way of Christ, who gives us assurance that we are indeed the children of God and who unites all of God's people, both to Christ and to each other, fell upon them who earnestly heard God's word and it was evidence. And this reception of the Holy Spirit by Cornelius and his family and friends was evidenced by the fact that they started speaking in other languages, extolling Christ, just as had happened back in Acts chapter 2 with Peter and the very first disciples. So they couldn't question it. They couldn't say, no, no, there's this lesser Holy Spirit that comes upon the Gentiles. It's, it's not the same as comes upon the Jews because look at these guys. They're doing the same things that we were doing. Not that this is a common everyday thing or that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. But God at this moment wanted to make it absolutely clear that this was his work to save Cornelius and all his family and friends. And he made that evident by the fact that Cornelius and all those who truly heard the word were now speaking in these other languages. And if I was a betting man, I would argue that it was probably Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, why do I say that? Because of the ones who stood amazed. 
Why did they stand amazed? That Greek speaker is now speaking to me in Aramaic. What is up? Right? The point is not that we have to speak in tongues in order to know that we're saved. That's, that's never, ever, ever been the point. But God was doing something very specific, very clear in order to make his glory known among the nations. This was undeniable proof that God was at work to empower his people to bear witness to the mission of Christ to the very ends of the earth. And he's overcoming language barriers to make that happen. So regardless of whether or not the Holy Spirit ever leads us to speak in tongues, we can be sure of this. He will lead us to extol Christ. And that's the reason for the tongues altogether, to extol Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. If he's going to do one thing in your life, it's, it's to lead you to extol, to exalt, to praise Christ. Whether it's here or it's abroad, true belief in the gospel, in the power of the Holy Spirit is revealed when the heart of every believer leads them to praise and to exalt Christ and to live lives that glorify God and to make his name known among all peoples and all nations. That's how we know. And so if you're asking yourself, you know, how do I really know that I've received the Holy Spirit? I would ask you this, do you experience genuine conviction of sin and do you desire to respond to God in repentance and faith? Do you love God? And is that love for God increasing? Do you love God's word? Do you love God's people? Do you desire to give glory to Christ by becoming more like him and by making him known? Do you praise God that you are now a, a child of God and you have that assurance because of the Holy Spirit at work within you and you desire for other people to have that same kind of assurance as God's children? That's how you can identify the Holy Spirit's work in your life. If so, extol Christ because you have received him. And so... A Christian is someone who earnestly believes the gospel and who has received the Holy Spirit, which is clearly the work of God and not man. We can't produce that kind of work. We can't give imitations of it. This is God's work. But a Christian is also someone who responds in obedience. Guys, let's not underestimate this. Yes, salvation is a work of God. But it leads to a different kind of life. And I'm amazed by how often we tra trade one for the other. As long as we can have the spectacular, then forget obeying the Lord. What, what glory is there in that? I would say all glory to Christ. Verse 46 says, Then Peter, having rejoiced to see the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, declared, can anyone withhold water for, being, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now these new Christians desired to make their new identity known by publicly professing through baptism their faith in Jesus Christ and their commitment to live for him. They responded in obedience to the command 
Let's be clear, it's a command to be baptized. When we repent of our sin and we believe in Christ, having received the Holy Spirit, we too are to respond in obedience by being submerged in water as a symbol of our being united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. And that mode is significant because it represents, it displays, it pictures the gospel. It represents our sins being washed away, being purified by the blood of Christ through our faith in him and being raised to walk now in newness of life. In other words, to live a life of obedience to Christ. This is how we respond. And that response is not momentary. It's not something we do just like once upon a time, you know, we go back and we recall that and, and, and we largely forget about it, but it is a symbol of our pledge by God's grace to live for him. I want you to think about wedding vows or wedding rings or signing a, a marriage covenant. That's the kind of image we should say. We're, we, that, yeah, that happened at, on, on our wedding day, but that promise, that pledge is ongoing for my life. It's not that Cornelius is now free to, to do and live however he pleases, that, that suddenly he stopped fearing the Lord, he stopped seeking to do what is right, that he stopped praying or giving alms or, or striving to obey the word of the Lord right away or any of that. It's like, oh, I'm free now, I got baptized, I'm good to go, so here we are. No, all of those things continue, they're now just redirected under the true object of a right faith in Christ. And even more than that, it's now empowered all the more by the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us. And so his obedience didn't wane. It intensified in the power of the Spirit. And just because Luke doesn't just kind of go on to give us greater details of Cornelius' life, which I would have loved for him to do that, we do get a small glimpse of it right there at the very end of verse 48, right, where it says, Then they asked Peter to remain for some days. Peter, I want you to stay. Please stay. Stay here. And they weren't doing that because they were polite and they wanted to be good hosts and hostesses. Well, you know, Peter's here now. He made this big journey. I guess we ought to put him somewhere, uh, feed him a little bit. It wasn't as though they really enjoyed Peter's company. Like, man, he's a great guy. I never want this guy to leave. He needs to stay here forever. He's so funny. No, they asked because they wanted to take advantage of every opportunity to learn all they could about how to live for the glory of Christ. Not, not perfectly, but truly. Not for the moment or not just in that season or that occasion of life, but with their lives. And so I pray that through this passage, we can now have a better understanding of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is not simply a good person or a, or a devout person. A Christian is not from a particular background. No, a Christian is someone who earnestly believes the gospel, who has received the Holy Spirit, and who strives by God's grace to respond in lifelong obedience. Does that describe you this morning? In what ways do you find yourself still needing to repent and believe? Do you see your need of Jesus? You feel your heart being drawn towards him. 
How do you need to respond? Repent, believe, be baptized, strive by God's grace to live for him? Friends, I want you to know that regardless of who you are or what you have done, God has welcomed you in Christ. And I would plead with you to respond because only those who believe in Christ and who have received the Holy Spirit will be accepted by the Father. So let's pray together.